imagine some of us today are as weary as some of those children looked. <laughs> but it has been a uh, delightful time, and I just appreciate the opportunity of being here with you, not only to uh, minister the Word, but to have the fellowship and be ministered to uh, by you. It has been a tremendous uh, time for me. And I don't mind the work. When I go to something like this, I go expecting the work, and that's good. So, but it's been um, a great blessing. I hope that uh, even though we live a continent away, that I can, uh, in the near future, bring my wife back to just come and uh, be a family camping at family camp. That would be uh, a great thing to be able to do. But Sarah and I have been glad to be here. Let us pray. Almighty God, we do praise you that you have provided for us this time together in your presence uh, in this beautiful location. And Lord, we do thank you for your mercy to us. You have met with us. Uh, you have taught us and encouraged us. You have kept us safe. You have given us wonderful times together and play and fellowship. You have uh, surrounded us with your beauty. And Lord, we thank you for all those whom we have thanked this morning that have worked so hard, not only this week, but uh, in the months leading up to this. And um, we praise you for those in the past who had the vision for a time like this and for those that uh, carry that work on. As we return our attention once again to uh, your Lord's Day and the work of that day, we pray that your Spirit shall indeed again be our teacher. Open to us wonderful things of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I imagine that if I were to ask you this morning, what do you think is the most important thing uh, for the Christian to do? We might get some different answers, maybe not, but uh, some might say, well, we're to uh, glorify God in all of life. Uh, others might say that we are to... Um, uh, live holy lives in public. Uh, some might say that uh, our responsibility as Christians is the greatest thing that we do is to evangelize uh, both individually and is as a church. But I believe the Bible teaches that the most important thing that we do as individuals and as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the corporate worship of God. Everything else is important, but everything else flows in and out of this. We surely see that, don't we, when Moses tells Pharaoh that God says, let my people go, that they might go a three days journey and do what? To a mountain where I've established they might worship me. Now, was that pretense? Was that merely a charade to get them out of the land? No, that really was God's great intention. He was to have a people would be a worshiping people. And the Savior picks up on that important theme in John chapter 4 as he's talking to the Samaritan woman and answering her questions with respect to worship. And he says to her in verse 23 of John 4, An hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father 
in spirit and truth for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. He who came to seek and save the lost came to seek and save a people to be saved that they might be the worshiping people of the Lord God. And so there are many important things that we do as Christians and as congregations. But the weekly corporate worship of the Church of Jesus Christ, I believe, is the crowning act of our service to God in this life as it will be the crowning act of our service to God in all eternity. And so as we come to the uh, conclusion of our study of the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, uh, we do so by focusing on uh, this great work of the Sabbath. We've tried to lay the theological and biblical foundation that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance, thus it is perpetually binding on all people and particularly on the people of God. That our Sabbaths are structured by the fourth commandment, that God does tell us things that we may not and should not do on the Lord's Day in order to free us up to devote ourselves to the important works of the Lord's Day that we have discussed both in private duties and in our family duties. But of course, this is the most important work of all. And then we went to the New Testament in order to establish that the New Testament does not repeal the Sabbath. Our Savior does not repeal the Sabbath, but rather lifts it back up to its um, God-ordained beauty and purposes. And in doing so, gives us some very important principles by which we can um, judge uh, and make decisions about our own behavior. And as some of you have come with questions during the week, I keep bringing you back to those two questions uh, because God has not made us the lords of each other's consciences. He's the lord of the conscience. And in the application of these principles to these gray areas of life, remember these two questions. Does it promote the purposes of the day? Does it promote the well-being of my neighbor? And then we looked at uh, the apostles' teaching to see that when he tells us that we're not bound to observe days, that each person is free, that he's talking about Jewish ceremonial days. He's not talking about the one day and seven Sabbath that immediately changed in the New Testament church to the first day of the week. And we looked then at Hebrews chapter 4, to see that there remains a Sabbath-keeping and that it is to be on uh, the first day of the week. And so we conclude now with the work of the Sabbath, and I would direct your attention to Psalm 92. Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to thy name, O Most High to declare thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness by night. When the ten, with the ten-string lute, with the harp, with resounding music upon the lyre, for thou, O Lord, hast made me glad by what thou hast done, I will sing for joy at the works of thy hands. How great are thy works, O Lord! Thy thoughts are very deep. A senseless man has no knowledge, nor does a stupid man understand this. That's when the wicked sprouted up like grass, and all who did iniquity flourished. It was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. But thou, O Lord, art on high forever. For behold, thine enemies, O Lord. 
For behold, thine enemies will perish. All who do iniquity will be scattered. But thou hast exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil, and my eyes looked exultantly upon my foes. My ears hear of the evildoers who rise up against me. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. They should be full of sap and very green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Now this psalm, as you note, as we uh, uh, will seek to look at it this morning, is a psalm that is designed for the Lord's Day. You'll see in the title to the psalm, it's not printed in your outline, but uh, it's in your Bibles, that it is a song for the Sabbath day. And thus, uh, the church is testifying here, I believe by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that this uh, psalm uh, particularly describes for us the work of the church on the Sabbath, a work of corporate worship, a work that the psalm sets before us under three headings, a work of uh, celebration, a work of anticipation, and a work of recreation. Now we are reminded by this psalm being a psalm for the Sabbath day that the Sabbath day is the day for corporate worship. We noted yesterday in passing that Leviticus 23.3 tells us that in the Old Covenant on their Sabbaths uh, they were to have a Sabbath, the seventh day Sabbath, for a holy convocation. That it was a day for the church coming together and corporately uh, worshiping the Lord. And that is uh, emphasized here in the title of this psalm. And we see then that uh, this is the work that we're to do. Uh, This work of celebration on the Lord's Day, I'm not using that term to focus on the more uh, festive aspects of worship. Some like to make a distinction between worship and celebration. But I'm using the word to encompass Uh, all of the work of corporate worship that focuses on the declaration of the beauty and the goodness that expresses praise and love and adoration to God. Uh, We see some of the verbs that are used here in Psalm 92. Give thanks to the Lord. Sing praise to thy name. Declare thy loving kindness. Um, Sing for joy. And these are the are the acts of uh, corporate worship that I have in mind when we speak here of the work of celebration. Now, as we look at verses 1 through 4, which describes for us the work of celebration, we see that the work of corporate worship comes out of a profound realization of who God is, that God is the focus of corporate worship. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to thy name, O Most High, to declare thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness by night. 
one of the issues that we have to wrestle with today with respect to certain expressions of contemporary worship. I know that Dr. Godfrey dealt with this last year. Uh, is a, a worship that no longer primarily focuses on God, but it focuses on people, and it focuses even on the unconverted. But uh, this psalm brings us back to uh, this great truth, that worship is a transaction between God and his people. And the focus of our worship is on God, and it grows then out of this profound realization of who he is. The psalmist reminds us of who God is by the use of certain names and attributes. He highlights for us two names here as he sets the direction or the focus of our worship. He tells us that we are to give thanks to the Lord and that we are to sing praises uh, to uh, the one who is God most high. And in these two names, uh, much of, of the character of God is captured. Of course, the word Lord reminds us that he is the eternal, self-sufficient God who is a God of covenant, who has taken initiative and entered into covenant with his people and uh, thus has shown them his love and his faithfulness. The word uh, most high uh, comes out of the uh, patriarchal revelation and it is the name, remember, in Genesis chapter 14 as God reveals himself to us in the transactions between Melchizedek and Abraham. And Melchizedek is the priest of God Most High, El Elyon, who is the possessor of heaven and earth. And here uh, the creator, sovereign God is pictured for us in this title, that he is the one who has made all things and all things belong to him. Now, in these two names then, we have pictured for us the two great works of God, redemption and creation. That Jehovah, the Lord, Yahweh, is the great redeeming God of the covenant. And uh, God Most High is the creator and possessor of heaven and earth. And so we see immediately this choice of names re relating to uh, the two great uh, works uh, that the Sabbath focuses on itself. That uh, uh, the seventh-day Sabbath focuses on God as creator, and the change to the first-day Sabbath focuses on God as redeemer. And, of course, all the other names of God are appropriate in our worship, but this simply reminds us that we come into his presence with this awareness of who he is, with whom uh, we have dealings. The focus is highlighted even more uh, as the psalmist reminds us that we know God not only through his names, but through his attributes. And so verse 2 tells us that we declare the loving kindness of God in the morning and thy faithfulness by night. Now, these two attributes, loving kindness and faithfulness, are taken merely as representative of all of God's attributes. They are, in a sense, windows on the attributes of God, chosen because of their, again, relationship to the names of God. Uh, Jehovah, the God of covenant, is the God of loving kindness. That This is his covenant love. It is his mercy. And it is the expression then, the concrete expression of uh, what it means that God is Yahweh or Lord. 
And of course, uh, God's faithfulness is a concrete expression that he is uh, the creator, possessor, the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth who does all things according to his promise and never fails to accomplish that which he has said he will do, but always delivers. Now again, uh, we see the appropriateness of these two things on the Lord's Day, that we begin not just the Lord's Day, but every day reflecting on the uh, loving kindness, the covenant love of our God, um, because he is our Redeemer. And the loving kindness of God, of course, is only truly understood in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the love of the Father to the Son that accepted the work and raised him from the dead. And thus, for Christ's sake, uh, the love of God comes to us in the covenant as covenant love and covenant mercy. And uh, it is uh, God uh, who is the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth who has been faithful to us in that covenant as he was faithful to Christ and in Christ are all of the promises of God made full and Christ is the yes and the amen to the promises of God. So we see uh, the interrelationship here again to our praise of God on the Sabbath uh, for uh, these uh, attributes and thus all of his attributes. Now, as I've said, it is truly appropriate that each morning as we awaken, that we might train ourselves, that our first thoughts are, uh, are of God. And what better day to begin the day than to remind yourself that it is the love of God that will protect you and keep you uh, during the day. And what better way to end a day than to reflect on his faithfulness. Uh, bless the Lord, all my soul, all that's within me, bless his holy name. For indeed he has provided for all of my needs. He has uh, healed my illnesses and he has forgiven my sins. And he's done for me today more than I could begin to ask or expect. But it's particularly the Lord's day that we then focus on these things. Now some suggest when we find the language in verse 2 that we uh, uh, declare God's loving kindness in the morning and his uh, faithfulness at night that here the scripture is requiring uh, morning and evening worship. Now, I'm unwilling to go that far that this is a requirement of scripture in this but there's surely a pattern of scripture here isn't there? Because this takes us back to the morning and evening sacrifices. That God himself established the principle of a corporate focus, morning and evening, on every day of the week, but then that is an emphasis on the Sabbath with the uh, double offerings and the other Sabbath activities at the temple, as well as in the holy convocations that were taking place in all of the cities and villages and towns of Israel. And so I believe there's surely a good inference here that God's people uh, should worship corporately. And furthermore, there is simply the, the practicality of it. Uh, if we understand the theology of preaching, that when the lawfully ordained man of God preaches, Christ speaks with a voice and authority that supersedes every other communication from God, 
then why in the world would we deprive ourselves of a second opportunity to hear that voice of Christ as we have this pattern laid out before us in the Scripture? And when we recognize that God attaches His promises and blessings to corporate worship that He is not attached to any other exercise of Christian duties. All the duties that we do in private have greater blessing attached to them in public and there are blessings to public worship that are never attached to private worship. And so I believe that the church has been right in all these centuries to have morning and evening worship and I believe that although there are other good things that the church wants to do in terms of small groups and body life and other activities, is that I just encourage you not, not to give up corporate worship twice in the Lord's Day for the sake of these things. But let us reaffirm uh, our commitment to this great work so that in the evening we declare God's loving kindness, in the morning we declare God's loving kindness, and in the evening we declare His faithfulness. Now the focus of corporate worship on God, as we see in the text, is not just on who He is, but also on what He has done and is doing. And so the psalmist says in verse 4, For Thou, O Lord, hast made me glad by what Thou hast done. I will sing for joy at the works of Thy hand. And here the psalmist sets before us that we worship God because of His mighty works. And again, all the works of God are summarized under the two great Sabbath works, our Sabbath celebrated works, of creation and redemption. These two great headings uh, encompass everything that God uh, is and has and will do in this creation and we'll celebrate those things through all eternity. And so again, the Sabbath points us to creation. It points us to the completion of creation and the faithfulness of God in His providence. And the first day Sabbath points us to the completion of the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that God is now applying uh, that work to us. But it's not to be a consideration of the work of God in the abstract. One of the reasons that uh, worship, corporate worship, can become impersonal or abstract is because we're not engaging personally with the works of God, both the objective works of God and the personal works of God in our own lives. Look back over at Psalm 66, and we see what we really should be doing uh, with respect to the works of God in worship. How do we look at the great works of God in creation and redemption? Well, I think verse uh, 5 and 6 of Psalm 66 gives us a little insight. Here's a psalmist saying, Come and see the works of God, who is awesome in his deeds towards, toward the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. Now notice this. There let us, Rejoice in Him. Isn't this fantastic? He takes an objective historical work of God, the uh, exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea. Now he says, Come with me. Behold the work of the Lord. 
this awesome God, what He's done when He caused the people to pass through uh, the sea. And as He brings you there in your corporate worship to look at the Word of God, then what's that last commandment, exhortation? There, let us rejoice. You see how we are to interact with the works of God? We don't just list them like a laundry list, but we come to think of these works as they personally apply to us and to our families and to the church and to the culture. And we rejoice that God is our Creator and thus He's our Sustainer. The Most High, the Possessor of Heaven and Earth, possesses us. He keeps us. He governs us. And we think about the great works of Old Testament redemption, but the greatest work of all in the active and passive obedience of our Savior and there focused at Calvary as He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We think about Him lying in the grave for us that our graves might be sanctified to us and that He is raised for us sits in heaven for us. He'll come again for us. There let us rejoice. So as we focus on God, it's on His works, not in the abstract, but how these works relate to us. Then we rejoice and praise God. But of course, the great works of God are not all objective in the past. You should be thinking about the great works of God in your life today. And thus the psalmist goes on in Psalm 66 and he says in verse 16, Come and hear all you who fear God and I will tell of what He has done for my soul. Now you know earlier I talked about the importance of spiritual conversation and we're a little hesitant. Uh, I heard some of the board members talking, you know, and a little hesitant about uh, 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 giving testimonies and, and sharing a group like this. But isn't this what the psalmist is doing? And there's an element in our corporate worship, not that we have a testimony service in corporate worship, but we're each coming to corporate worship with a conscious realization of God in my life. And we're taking opportunity for the hymns and the prayers and the preaching to realize that our lives are interpreted by the Word of God. Our lives are interpreted by the preaching of God. And thus, in our worship, as we forsake not the assembling of ourselves together, but we're stirring up one another to holiness and to good deeds. And so we come aware of God's goodness to us. The answers to prayer. That's particularly, I think, what the psalmist says here in verse 17. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. Uh, he answers our prayers. He keeps us. He uh, protects us from our own stupidity and sinfulness. He sanctifies us. He uses us. And we should come to worship Him with a deep realization of the works of God in our own lives. And so in this work of celebration, it's appointed for the Sabbath. The focus is on God in our corporate worship and how then do we extol the name and attributes and work of God? Well, notice that it is with a tremendous exuberance. The uh, uh, psalmist begins 
this discussion of corporate worship on the Sabbath by saying it is good to give thanks to the Lord. It's, it's pleasant to God. Sometimes the psalmist takes the, it is good that direction. The Lord delights in the corporate worship of his people. It is pleasing to him. And he then takes great pleasure in the church as we worship him. But it's also pleasant for us. It is uh, pleasant and seemly to do so. It is a, a good thing, a wonderful thing, a glorious thing uh, to uh, worship the Lord. And that's expressed here in the manner of worship in verses 3 and 4 with the ten-string lute, with the harp, with the resounding music upon the lyre. For thou, O Lord, hast made me glad by what thou hast done. I will sing for joy at the works of thy hands. You see the exuberance of, uh, of the psalmist in worship. I'm sure a number of us um, over the last uh, few Saturdays watched one of the three, if not all, the race of the Triple Crown. And one of the things that's always uh, um, interested me in these thoroughbred racehorses is, is the, um, they are straining to run. <laughs> they have to be restrained until the moment that the gate opens. You know, they, they, are, they are made to run, and that's what they want to do. And, they, and, and, and in a sense, they're held back. And we ought to be coming to corporate worship like a thoroughbred. Anxious, anxious to praise God with glad hearts and exuberance. Thus, this list of instruments that we don't even know what all of them are. And I believe that they're here for us uh, uh, typically, that they aren't to mark our worship now, but they were used in worship then as a picture of the spiritual worship that's not dull and boring that we bring to God, but a worship of glad hearts, people made glad by the Lord Jesus Christ, and thus worshiping Him with energy and with passion. Now, you know how enthusiastic you are if you're, if you're going to a, a concert to hear your favorite uh, composer or, or singer or group or whatever, or if you're going to a ball game, there's, a, there's a, an excitement, there's an electricity in the air. Why shouldn't that electricity be in the air as we are streaming together at the house of the Lord on the Lord's day? That there is a, a glad-heartedness as we come together. There is an enthusiasm. There's an electricity because we're coming with the people of God to praise Him. Now, as I showed you yesterday, if we're going to worship God in this way, particularly with this gladness and this exuberance, that entails a preparation. We can't come and just pick this up from one another, although that is a part of corporate worship. And we surely all have experienced that when you come to, to worship and, and perhaps you're down this day, uh, and yet it's as your brothers and sisters are singing there with you that suddenly uh, your own passion is ignited. And that's part of the social aspect of corporate worship. But if we prepare ourselves, and we're thinking before we come to corporate worship on the names and character and work of God, and particularly as that is manifesting itself in our own experiences in the past week even, we come with our affection stirred up, we come with a focus already on God, and thus we come prepared to worship. Now this relates to the work of the Lord's Day again. 
You see the wisdom of God in giving you a whole day free of other distractions so that you might indeed come to corporate worship thinking about Him? I'll never be convinced that a person can go from work to worship to play to work to worship to play and really praise God appropriately or benefit from the day. And what God has done is He's freed you so that you do have time before and after corporate worship as you devote yourselves to corporate worship to get the full thrust and benefit of the day and to approach it in a way with skill and passion and energy and intelligence uh, that God would have you to approach it with. I know when we lived in Houston and the kids were younger and um, the nights that I would try to be home, we'd try to do things as family or, you know, let's just relax together, you know, that uh, the phone would ring incessantly. And it wasn't serious pastoral uh, matters. It was this thing or that thing, you know, or it was a phone salesperson or whatever. And so we bought an answering machine because we resented it. Never resented the people of God having needs 24 hours a day. That's one thing. But calling me to get somebody else's phone number or calling me to talk about something that can be talked about uh, uh, the next day or, or at other times. Um, so we, we got us an answering machine simply to screen the unnecessary calls because they were impinging on our time together as a family. And what God has done for us with the Sabbath is he has turned on the answering machine. He says, all right, I'll screen your life for you. And uh, he frees us up then uh, for this great work of celebration. Well, the, the second work of the Sabbath is the work of anticipation. And that's recorded for us in verses 5 through 11. How great are thy works, O Lord! Thy thoughts are very deep. A senseless man has no knowledge, nor does a stupid man understand this. That when the wicked sprouted up like grass, and all who did iniquity flourished, it was only they that they might be destroyed forevermore. But thou, O Lord, art on high forever. For behold, thine enemies, O Lord, for behold, thine enemies will perish. All who do iniquity will be scattered. But thou hast exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. I've been anointed with fresh oil, and my eye has looked exultantly upon my foes. My ears hear of the evildoers who rise up against me. Now here, the psalmist brings to mind something that many of us wrestle with. Talk to some of you about it even these days together. And that is this age-old question. Why in the world do the wicked prosper and race through life as the righteous limp along? That bothers you and me. It's bothered God's people throughout the history of the church. And what the psalmist has shown us here is that the Lord's Day, with its work of corporate worship, is a way to get a different perspective. It's a way to get above all of this and look at it from an eternal perspective. Every fall for the last few years, I've been doing a retreat in Breckenridge, Colorado for former students and other pastors um, who have asked to come. And one of the things that some of us do, it's kind of a challenge each year to the guys to come in better shape, is we do a 14,000-foot uh, peak hike. There was 90-something of these peaks in Colorado, and we've done five or six now. 
uh, it's uh, a tremendous feeling of accomplishment to do it as well as one of the most painful things you'll ever do. But when you get at 14,000 feet, the world looks very different. Perspective is phenomenal. And that's what the Sabbath is for us. It is a 14,000-foot peak. It's an eternal peak. Uh, in fact, it's the Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks are up the road here. Uh, the Sabbath of the Twin Peaks of uh, the great works of God's uh, uh, creation and redemption. And it helps us, particularly when we come to the worship with God's people, to see life differently. You notice how the psalmist puts it. He he introduces this section with a, a declaration again of the great works of God and the deep thoughts of God. And here he's reminding us that God's ways are not our ways. His ways are inscrutable. Um, the past are finding out. Uh, but it does not take away from the fact that his works are great. And then he, he talks about the worldling. But notice how he describes him. He, he's a senseless man who has no knowledge He's a stupid man who doesn't understand. And the word he actually uses is brutish. He's no better than a brute beast. Because he lives in his prosperity. And he thinks that all is great with him. And he fails to realize that God has given him his prosperity as a call to repentance, as Paul says, uh, for example, in Acts chapter 14. And he simply abuses the free gifts of God in his idolatry and he thinks he will live forever in his prosperity. He has no more self-consciousness than a bull in a field. But you see, the psalmist says that the wicked, when he sprouted up like grass and all who did iniquity flourished, it was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. That if they remain in their wickedness, in their prosperity, despising God, blind to his goodness to them, and refuse to repent, then they are simply going to be destroyed because God is the sovereign judge. As he goes on to say then, in verse 8, But thou, O Lord, art on high forever, for behold, thine enemies, O Lord, behold, thine enemies will perish. All who do iniquity will be scattered. And here he says is that they don't see it, but we can see it. That God is a righteous judge, and even though the wicked seem to prosper, it is only for a season, and their prospering will only make them fodder for God's furnace and trash for God's compost pile. And it's the Sabbath that reminds us of this, because we come... Here and we are reminded of the eternal rest. That there's more to life than meets the eye. And the Sabbath gets our vision from here at the horizontal to God. To the rest that He declared to us on the very first Sabbath at creation. And that He accomplished for us in the completed work of Shiloh the rest giver and that we have already begun to participate in, thus our Sabbath keeping is on the first day of the week. But it reminds us that He's coming again to bring us unto Himself and to make all things right. 
And it's the Sabbath that lifts us up above all of this and causes us, as we think on the great works of God, to be reminded that he is judge. And although the wicked prosper now, they will not prosper forever. And although the righteous limp along now, they will not limp forever. But furthermore, we see here, as we think about the Sabbath as anticipation, the Sabbath itself is a declaration of the reality of this judgment because the Sabbath is a declaration of the vindication of whom? Of the Savior. Notice how in verses 10 and 11, the psalmist now jumps ahead and thinks about the Messiah because I believe this is messianic. But thou hast exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. I've been anointed with fresh oil, and my eye has looked exultantly upon my foes. My ears hear of the evildoers who rise up against me. This is Christ here. It's Christ who heard them mock him. He was despised and rejected of men. Even when he was on Calvary's cross, they uh, abused him and they mocked him and they accused him of all manner of evil. But you see, the psalmist expresses here for uh, the Savior, for the Lord's true anointed one, uh, a victory that thou hast exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. Now the horn is used in the Psalms to describe the strength and majesty. It's the horn of the oxen. And, and it's used often of David and of, of the Christ uh, for that strength and majesty. And here uh, the, the Savior declares through David that even though he has been despised and rejected, that God is going to exalt his horn. He's going to be lifted up in strength and majesty. He's going to be anointed with fresh oil above that of his fellows and his eyes will look exultantly on his foes. And then when did that happen for the Savior? It happened on Sunday morning. He rose again from the dead with the fresh anointing of the Father, with the strength and power of the wild oxen. All of his strength and majesty he rises as the son of righteousness. He rises as the king of kings. He rises as the Lord of lords. As I said to you yesterday, in his resurrection is our vindication. Not only our justification, but is the, is the declaration of God to us that God will vindicate us as well. And so the Sabbath, you see, reminds us that God is judge, that there is an eternal age that is coming when all things will be made right. But furthermore, the very celebration of the first day of the week is a celebration of the vindication of God to the Savior and thus the vindication of God to us in the Savior. And of course, the most focused place that this occurs on the Lord's Day is in corporate worship. It is here in these acts of corporate worship that we make our way to the 14,000-foot peak and our perspective changes. You remember the testimony of the psalmist in Psalm 73? He envied the wicked, and he was tempted to speak evil of God. In verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I should have betrayed the generation of thy children. 
when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuaries of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou didst cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, thou wilt despise their form. And then he comes to this subtle realization. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from thee will perish. Thou hast destroyed all those who are unfaithful to thee, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all thy works. And this is what happens, you see. When we come into the courts of the Lord, into corporate worship with the people of God, we get our perspective back. We are reminded of the eternal verities and realities and that God is judge and his cause will prevail and be successful. And we anticipate eternity and we don't envy the wicked because we know their end and we know that God is our portion. So we can say with Habakkuk, everything else might fail. My health, my crops, my job, the Lord is my portion. And that's what corporate worship does for us, you see. It reminds us of this. It gives us a fresh sight. And it, it takes us above the dailiness of life. Because we also ourselves have the worldliness that clings to us of wrong motives and affections and, and desires. And here again, we mount up and we see things differently. And so corporate worship on the Lord's Day is a work of celebration. It's a work of anticipation. And finally, it's a work of recreation. Notice the contrast. The psalmist says in verse 7 that when the wicked sprouted up like grass, that all who did iniquity flourished, it was only they might be destroyed forevermore. And now he says in verse 12, the righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. They should be full of sap and very green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. You see that even though the wicked shall be like grass and freshly cut hay, that the righteous shall prosper and flourish forever. The psalmist uh, uses two figures here, the palm tree and the cedar of Lebanon. I've read that the palm tree can live to be 200 years old and bear fruit from 40 to 100 years. And thus in the Bible it's a sign of eternal fruitfulness and that's why we see that the tabernacle and temple were partly decorated with palm trees. 
The cedars of Lebanon were gigantic, domed, aromatic, evergreen trees, not dissimilar from our sequoias. Uh, they can live for hundreds of years. They can be 63 feet in girth and 70 feet tall. And thus they become a symbol in Scripture of the strength and uh, majesty and perpetuity and freshness of the people of God. And the psalmist really chooses these two images to speak to us now of the prosperity of the righteous in contrast to uh, the wicked. And you'll notice that this is a lifelong prosperity. He says in verse 14, they'll still yield fruit in old age and they'll be full of sap and very green. That we live in a culture that despises the elderly and puts an undue premium on youth. But here we see that it is the elderly above all who are the testimonies of God's covenant faithfulness and that even though the body decays and strength fails and even the mind might begin to go, that there is a gentle resting in Christ and there's a fruitfulness in the midst of the congregation and there is this living testimony to the goodness of God. Notice how the psalmist comes full circle then. That even as they grow old physically, they still yield fruit. They're full of sap and very green. In fact, we know that in the process of sanctification that the older we become, the more we become Christ-like. And as, as, as the things that we prize when we're young begin to fall away, it's Christ in His beauty and glory who becomes all the more precious and desirable to us. And then so we see in the concluding verse that these are the ones we come full circle to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There's no unrighteousness in Him. We began by declaring God's loving kindness and faithfulness. We conclude now with uh, uh, those in whom the sap of the Lord runs fully and freely, leading us in the praise of God's uprightness and righteousness. But where does this prosperity occur? Notice where these trees are planted. In verse 13, they're planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. And do you see that the true prospering of God's people takes place in the soil of corporate worship? Do you see this? That these palms and these cedars of Lebanon are planted in the corporate assembly of God where they become fresher and fresher and lead the congregation in the praises of God by their participation. And thus we see that God not only refocuses our vision for eternity, but it is as we are in corporate worship that we grow and prosper spiritually. And it brings us back to what we saw in Isaiah 58. The Lord's day is appointed that we might delight ourselves in God and grow with grace and have spiritual victory and enjoy our inheritance. And above all places, that happens to us and for us in corporate worship. Here's true recreation. And so you see why we turn aside from our recreations? 
Yes, the body needs some relaxing. The bow needs to be loosened and unbent. Rest and recreation are good for us physically and mentally. But the recreation of the Lord's Day, the recreation of corporate worship, is that that equips us to serve God in our generation and to enjoy Him forevermore. And so God says, on Sunday, you forget about this other stuff and enjoy me and there be planted in the courts of the Lord. And so the work of corporate worship on the Sabbath is a work of celebration, of anticipation, and of recreation. And you see how this work brings us right back to those initial purposes of God's rest. He rested from his work of creation. He calls us to come into the rest of recreation on the Lord's day. In his rest, he meditated on and contemplated the goodness of uh, his creation. And he tells us uh, that we uh, come to contemplate his goodness and to proclaim his greatness. And in his rest, he declares eternity, eternal rest for us. And in our resting, then, we look at that eternity and rejoice in the inheritance that is ours. Our God is a good God. The Lord's Day is a great gift. And corporate worship is the crowning jewels of that gift. As you go back, literally off this mountain and away from uh, the movement of thought and mind and emotions that occur when we are off in a context like this, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I pray that all of us will go back with renewed vigor and delight in God and in His day. If we need to make repentance and confession to our children or our parents or to others in the church, then we need to do so and clear the slate and encourage one another then in the things that are before us in these great uh, privileges of God. Now you might not yet be convinced and what should you do? Well, there's two things. One is you keep pondering the scripture and seeking the mind of the spirit. But two is, surely, even if you're unconvinced, about the Sabbath, and how in the world could you be after my teaching? I don't know. <laughs> but if you are, surely you all resonate with these great privileges that belong to God's people. But there's also a danger. Right now you sit here and you say, yes, this is right, and I'm going to do things differently. But you get back, and the pressure suddenly is, well, I know I shouldn't do this, but dangerous words. Or you're sitting here now and says, I know I should do this, but dangerous thinking. No, you seek God's grace to live by the light that you have and to enjoy the privileges that God has given unto you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we do praise your name for the Lord's day for corporate worship. We thank you that you give us this work to do, that you give us an eternal perspective, that you do this work of recreation in us and grant us, Lord, these uh, 
benefits and privileges in corporate worship and in our private use of the Lord's Day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We'll take a break and um, come back here in 15 minutes. That'll be 11 for 30 minutes question and answer. Is that right?